If you have your Bibles, go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. All right, usually I get up to preach, it's like 20 after, I've used 20 minutes, or 30 minutes of that already, uh, so uh, hope you all don't have dinner in the crock pot that's going to overcook, just kidding, <sighs> goodness, Philippians chapter 2, and we are going to uh, uh, have to push pretty quickly through these uh, notes today. All right, let me get my Bible there. What was that? Yeah, right. See, you need to get your crockpots put on a remote control connected to your iOS device so that you can slow and speed up as we progress. A buddy of mine has his alarm uh, for his house. He can turn it on and off from his cell phone, and it's down two hours away. I'm like, That's pretty neat. He can turn it on and off, and... Uh, remote cameras, all that stuff. That's good. So get your crock pot hooked up to a iOS device. <laughs> I'm sure it is out there. All right. Okay. Let's uh, let's crank through this. Um, let me um, let's read Philippians chapter two, verses one through eleven, and then we'll 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 pray. Paul says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God and the Father. Let's pray. Father, I pray in these next very short moments, um, Father, that your word would be preached, um, Father, that you would... Um, that you'd push me out of the way. Um, and Father, that um, it would be your word speaking to your people. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. You say, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas time? I thought this was like when we get the, sermon, the, the Christmas sermon, right? This is when we get the, Jesus was born in a manger, and there he laid. And, uh, you know, we sang all the Christmas songs. So now what about the Christmas, uh, Christmas sermon? Well, I, I think you'll see as we go that this has everything to do with Christmas. This is a Christmas passage, if you will. Um, so let me start here. Let's think about the Trinity with me for a few moments. If 
I want to specifically, when we think about the Trinity in these few moments, I want us to think specifically about the Son. About one part of the Trinity, the Son. When we think about Him, we think about Him as eternal, right? When we think about the Son as part of the Trinity, we think about Him as eternal. Everybody there with me? Like we think of Him as always being in existence, as eternal. Uh, we think of Him as the eternal Son of the Father, uh, we think of him as having no beginning and no end. I hope your theology includes that when it comes to the Son. If not, it's, uh, it's called heresy. Uh, we think of Jesus. He is, has no beginning and has no end. That is orthodox Christianity. Uh, and I believe that's what the Bible teaches. So we think of him as having no beginning, no end. But when we think about the Son at this time of year, we think of the boy born of the Virgin Mary, right? This child who had a beginning and in time, uh, or had his beginning in time through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we think about this created person. So here we have the divine nature of the eternal Son magnificently joined with the created human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But think about that for just a second. So let's go back and read some of these words from Luke chapter 1 in the birth passage. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that might be, or this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said, angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy. What? The Son of God. So here we have the one and only conception and subsequent birth of the Son of God. No other conception has been like this one. Would you all agree? No other conception like this one. The Holy Spirit brings this conception about without any help from a human father. That's what the text says, and if we accept the text as being authoritative, the text says there has been no involvement from a human father. This has theological reasons beyond just the fact that God wanted to do something kind of cool. Uh, there are reasons why this had, and we don't have time to go into that today. But I want to bring to our attention, not only does the Holy Spirit bring about life in a unique way, without the aid of a human father, but He also, for the first time in history, the Holy Spirit unites the divine and the human natures into one person called Jesus. 
he would be fully human, the Son of Mary, while also being fully divine, the Son of God or the Son of the Most High. The miracle of Christmas is both the conception of this baby Jesus, but also the conception and birth of this person who would be the Son of David and the Son of God. Right? So there's, there's two major, I mean, they're, and they're combined, but there's two major just facts going on there where you have this child born without a human father, but then you also have the uniting of these two very opposite natures, at least in some major attributes. Uh, the theologic word the theologians would use is he is theanthropic. That means that he is both divine and human in nature. So he is the theanthropic person, Jesus Christ, for you nerds out there that want a fancy word. Theanthropic. So, if you just pause for just a moment, I want you to think about what we just said, or what I just said, and what Luke just said. You have the eternal Son being united with the created person. Think about that. Does anybody else see a tension between those two? Anybody? There's a tension that has to be resolved. So the main question for us this morning is if the divine nature in Jesus was eternal and infinite, while the human nature in Jesus was created and finite, how could these two natures coexist in one person? How could they be together? Your answer is it's, it's God, of course, right? It's just God. It, it's just what He does. He does cool stuff like that. The Trinity, yeah, we don't understand that either. This is just one of those things. Or, or some of you guys, is your answer to that question is it's Jesus. Uh, yes, it is Jesus, but that doesn't answer any of the question. Uh, or it's the Bible. Well, uh, well, the Bible said it, and that's not an answer either. So Jesus is fully divine and fully human. So divine Think about his d- divine aspects of God, omniscient, omnipotent. Think about his aspects of a human, limited and finite human power, limited yet growing knowledge and wisdom. See, for some of you today, as we work through this with Christ, like your brain is going to go like, right? And, and I hope it does. Uh, and thinking through these truths. So you have the divine, omnipotent, omniscient human who is limited and finite in power, limited yet growing in knowledge and wisdom. How could Jesus simultaneously have both of these? How could he be both infinite and finite? How could he be both uh, infinite in power and yet limited in power? How could he be everywhere yet in only one place? How does this work. Um, And this is the fun that we're going to try and do in the next 25 minutes. How are those, how are these qualities compatible? You might say, look, again, it's the, it's like the Trinity. We don't get it. So this is just one of those. Um, But let me say this. 
I think a correct understanding of this truth, this doctrine, I think has great implications for us as we seek to follow the one who died for us. So understanding Christ, particularly understanding his humanity, has great implications for us if we seek to follow him. And so if we just talk about the, the miraculousness of the fact that she, a virgin, gave birth to this child, that's great. Those, those have huge things. But, but over the next two weeks, today and the next two weeks, I want to spend time with us, hopefully for some of us, bringing to life the man, Christ Jesus. Because most of us live as if he's either dead dead or he's so much God he's out of touch. And I hope that the text over the next few weeks will bring him back to life. You say, well, what's the big deal? It's Jesus. Let me think about this. Think about this flow with me for just a few moments. Our faith consists of God doing the following, reaching down into our lives, rescuing us from the depths of our sin, restoring us to the image of Christ, right? I mean, that's kind of a, a broad sweep. Now, as God sees this image to completion, it has kind of two aspects, right? Our hard work, as he will say later on in just a few verses, there's, a, there's a, uh, an effort of working hard here, and keep that thought for just a few moments. Yet, it is totally God's work altogether working through us. So this is how this plays out. So here's how this hard work, though, typically looks in our lives. We see sin in our life, like the Holy Spirit brings to our light that we have sin or something that needs fixed in our lives. We feel guilt and or conviction for our sin. Then we look at Jesus and we see an example. We see, well, he lived his life this way. But I think for many of us, what we quickly do, though, is we dismiss it and his example because we say, well, he was God. Of course he didn't struggle there. Or he was God. So we dismiss going to him subsequently because we have an overemphasis of his deity. And I think when we look at the New Testament, we see the emphasis ultimately on his humanity. But we see an emphasis in church culture. I think Satan has us fooled. We put such an emphasis on his deity that we miss out on relating to him in his humanity. So we don't run to Christ because we forget His humanity. We don't run to Christ because we don't understand His humanity. We don't relate to Christ because we don't understand His humanity. Well, He's God, of course. We then, what happens is we very spiritually muster up the strength to fix these issues. To fix the sin in our life. Well, I'm just going to do good here. So we end up living a life of defeat and discouragement. Because although we may be working hard, we see very little change. And I think it has, at least in part, but I think it has a lot to do with a misunderstanding of His humanity. Um, I believe if we understood more clearly the Christ that walked this earth, that we would run to Him for everything. That we would experience true transformation from the inside out. So why don't we run to Christ for everything? I mean, think about this with me. Because we don't understand, and this is kind of the crux for today, we don't run to Christ for true transformation because we don't understand or know that Christ experienced true 
transformation from the inside out. We go, how is that possible? He was God. And today's going to set the stage for us to think through this over the next couple weeks. How did Christ, who is God, how did He transform? How did He live this life? See, we think Christ was born, and in that manger He was singing, holy, 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 right? So like day two, and He's holy, holy, you know, you know, whatever, a little baby. That's, that's what we think. I mean, practically, is it not? We, we, think, we think he was, you know, uh, you get the point. We need to move on. So back to our question. What is it about Christ that we need to understand here before we move on to know better this Christ whose birth we celebrate? What do we need to understand better? And I think this text. So would Jesus be truly and genuinely human? This is kind of our... Big question for the day. Would he be truly and genuinely human if in his human experience he had limitless power, limitless knowledge, limitless wisdom, and limitless spatial presence? Would he be truly and genuinely human? If the divine nature in Jesus was eternal and infinite while the human nature in Jesus was created and finite, how could these two natures coexist in the one person? That is our question in large today. The answer, I believe, is uh, in the text of Philippians, um, and that's where we're going to focus. Let's go back to chapter 2. We're going to just read 5 through 8, and here's what we're going to work through. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's a few things we need to see from this text. First thing, Paul affirms that Christ is fully God. We see Paul's affirmation of the deity of Christ, that he is fully, 100% God. You say, well, where? All right, well, look at verse 6. He says, the form of God. You guys see that in verse 6? It was in the form of God. That comes from the Greek word morphe, uh, which means, or which refers to the inner nature or substance of something. So this has nothing to do with the external realities. This has everything to do with the internal realities of Christ. The internal nature or the very substance of something. He says, form of a servant. Obviously, Paul does not mean the outer appearance of a servant. He was a child. Right? I mean, think about it. He says, the outer form of God, and he came taking the form of a servant in verse 7. Taking the form of a servant. He's a child. Not a servant. He's a child. He's, he's, he's referring to his, his being, who he came to be. Um, Jesus took at his very nature the form of a servant. So form of God must mean the very nature of something. So he took on the very nature, or he was, he was sorry, in the form, though he was in the form of God. He, sorry, he did not take on the form. He was in the form of God. He was the very nature of of God. So the very nature of this child was the very nature of God. 
You see that? We're on the same page? A couple of other comments on that. The, basically, the innate or essential qualities of a character or a character of a person. That was Jesus. So the very innate, essential qualities of God was in Christ. He was God. We also see that he says that Christ possesses equality with God. Again, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he is saying he is equal with God. Again, making clear his full deity. Nothing, think about this, nothing can be equal with God. There is no God other than the true God. Nothing can be equal with God, else he ceases to be God. So think about this. Paul is claiming that Christ has equality with God. What must Paul be saying? Church, what must Paul be saying? That he is God. If nothing can be equal to God, yet Paul is saying that Christ is equal with God, he must be saying that that Christ is God. Let me give you a real quick side note here. It's interesting. In Scripture, uh, we see references to Christ as God, but then also to Christ as someone other than God. And this is not the only spot that we see it. You also see it in John 1 1. In the beginning, he was God, he is God, and he was with God. He was God, and he was with God. This is not the only time we see this, and, and it's not the only author. We don't just see this concept with Paul, we see this with John as well. And we see it in Hebrews chapter 1, the exact imprint of the nature of God. We see this concept from three different authors. So we see very clearly from Paul here that Christ is fully God. He is the eternal Son of the Father, the only begotten Son of God. Jesus, our Lord, is God. So that's the first thing we see in this text. The second thing that we see is that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So just think logically with me here for a second. He cannot mean that Christ gave up equality with God or that He ceased being fully God. So think about this. If He is fully God, He cannot cease to be fully God. To cease any aspect of His deity would would be to cease being God. That would be not possible. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, If God laid aside one of His attributes, the immutable undergoes a mutation. The infinite suddenly stops being infinite. It would be the end of the universe. I think that's a good point. So God is eternal, self-existing, immortal, immutable. He cannot cease to exist. So Paul cannot mean that Christ gave up aspects of God. Instead, what I believe Paul must mean is that Christ did not hold on to the privileges and benefits that were afforded to him in his position of equality with God. His privileges and benefits that came along with his equality with God. Does that make sense? So think about the privileges um, the benefits that come along with being who He is as God. 
And think about what he says right there. Go, go, back, to, go back to verse 6. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing. Take, so, not to be grasped. What's he mean by something not to be grasped? not to be take a hold of. Basically, what he's, what he's saying is that he did not hold on to these privileges and benefits so tightly that it would lead him to refuse coming to earth. So he had these privileges and benefits as, in his equality with God that he would have to give up in coming to this earth. So he did not hold on to those privileges, but those privileges are not the essence of being God. Like that's not his nature. He's not giving up parts of his nature. We're not just playing a semantic game here where we're saying, well, we're calling immutability, we're calling that privileges. That's not where these are in t- t- different categories. We're not talking about his nature. We're talking about his privileges, so benefits to him. These are, these are outside of him. This is not who he is intrinsically. He's not giving up those. He did not hold on so tightly that he would refuse the humiliation of the servant role he was being called towards. Now do you have a little bit of a picture of what privileges he is giving up? And this, will, this I think, will come a little more clear as, as we go. So, Jesus Christ, the third thing that we need to see, that Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is where we get into the title of the sermon called the kenosis. You're like, well, the kenosis, that's a weird theology term. Uh, it's a Greek term. Uh, and the word here specifically is ekenosin, which, which basically means emptied himself. Emptied himself. I, you know, the, the ESV says, God did not count equality with him with any regrets, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. I don't think that that's helpful uh, in the ESV. I don't think that's helpful at all. I think, I think if your Bible says emptied himself, does the NASB say emptied himself? Um, I think that's better. I think we just need to take the term and understand what it means. Um, it means literally that Christ emptied himself, or some Bibles might say poured himself out, which I think is also a little more helpful than making himself nothing. Poured out himself. Let me give you a couple notes and before, as we seek to understand this. It was not until the late 1800s that scholars wanted to understand this as Christ losing part of his deity. So this was not until just a couple hundred years ago where, where they began to say, well, this means, this emptying himself means that Christ gave up his immutability or Christ gave up his omniscience and, and gave it away and, and, and took it out of himself. It wasn't until then that, that they did this. But I want you to notice Paul's language here. Notice what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that Christ emptied something from himself. Do you see that in the text? Is he saying he emptied something from himself? Something like an aspect or this piece. Did he say he emptied something? Or did, is he saying that he poured something? He's, or he's not saying that he poured something out of himself. See that? So if I'm going to give up an aspect of myself and say the immutability, the unchangingness of myself, then I'm going to, I'm going to take that 
poured out and I'm going to give it out from myself. He doesn't say that in the text. Rather, it says he emptied himself. He poured himself. Do you get the difference? He's saying he poured all of himself out. That's his point. He emptied all of himself. So all of who Christ is as eternal God, all that he is as the one who is in the form of God and is equal to God, all of this is poured out. Christ then, in that understanding, can remain fully God. Because it's himself being given to this task. All of his immutability, his omniscience, his uh, omnipresence, all of that is being poured out to this task, to this mission. To remaining fully God in that. He loses nothing of his divine nature and no divine qualities are removed from him. Christ remains in his divine nature fully who and what he is in his existence as the eternal second person of the Trinity. He's been fully God for all of eternity, and now in the incarnation he pours out fully who he is as God, remaining fully God as he does. So, you go, wow, like, all right, dude, brain is starting to stretch here. We'll we'll keep pushing, okay? We're going to keep pushing. The question now then is, so what in the world does this mean? What does it mean? Like, this is, this is crazy. What does it mean? So the Christ, who exists in the form of God and is equal to God, pours himself out. What does that mean? I think we see it answered particularly in the participle that follows this phrase. Christ poured himself out. And then what's it say after that? What's it say after that? Verse 7. Mm-hmm. So Christ poured himself out, taking on or taking the form of a servant. So how does he pour out? He pours out by taking. How does he empty? He empties out by adding to himself. So Christ must come fully as a man, and as a man he must live his life and give his life as one of us. As he does this, he pours himself out all that he is, and he takes on the human nature. Remember, Paul does not say that he poured out part of himself, but he poured out himself, all of who he is. There is no subtraction. It's a subtraction by adding, and we're going to talk about that in just a few seconds, so hang with me. You're like, subtraction, how does that work? Like, I don't understand that math. We'll, We'll get there in a second. John Calvin said this, in order to exhort us to submission by his example, speaking of Christ, he shows that when as God he might have displayed to the world the brightness of his glory, he gave up his right and voluntarily emptied himself that he assumed the form of a servant and contented with the humble condition, suffered his divinity to be concealed under a veil of flesh. What about those words? 
that he could have showed the brightness of his glory, he gave up his ride and voluntarily emptied himself and assumed the form of a servant and contented with the humble condition and concealed underneath a veil of flesh. So, Christ came then to become the God-man. With this fully divine nature, he pours himself out by adding to himself the nature of man. Let me give you a couple illustrations. And I'm, I'm stealing these illustrations directly from uh, a theologian uh, much smarter than myself. He, he gave this illustration, um, what he, he called the car illustration. Imagine you walk into um, a car showroom. Anybody bought a car from the car showroom? Like, right? Yeah. Gorgeous, right? right? So imagine, though, you walked into the car showroom, and it's just beautiful red BMW, all right? Just gorgeous car, 50, 60, 70,000, whatever it costs. Right, you know, make it a Porsche if you want, whatever. It's a beautiful car, and you walk in, and you say, I, and, and the guy walks up, the salesman walks up to meet you, and you say, um, man, we are almost out of time. I'm going to have to hurry this illustration up. Uh, and he says to you, do you like this car? Well, yeah, I like this car. This car's beautiful. And he says, would you like to take it for a test drive? He said, well, yeah, I would love to take this car for a test drive. Who would not? As a matter of fact, I thought about doing that. Going to a Porsche dealer, I would like to take this for a test drive, please. No intentions to buy. Uh, <laughs> no ability to buy. Uh, and uh, he might think I'm some trust fund baby or something. I don't know. So, <laughs> so I take this car out for a spin. You take this beautiful car out for a spin. And as you're going down the road, you're all by yourself. And you see this dirt road. See the dirt road turn off. Just so happens it's been raining a little bit. So the road's a little on the muddy side. So you take this car on this dirt road. You want to see how it can handle, right? This, uh, we probably better make it a BMW. They, you know, uh, well, yeah, whatever. So we're going down this dirt road. And, man, you're just uh, sliding all over the place. And the mud is just, you're just caked all over this thing. And you, so finally you're like, all right, I've had enough fun. You head back to the to the, uh, you don't stop at the car wash, right? You just go right back, and you pull right in to the showroom floor, and the salesman comes up and says, what have you done to my car? That's, this, is, this is filthy. And he says, look, nothing has happened to your car. The bright red paint is still there. The engine, every bit of it is still there. Those beautiful, nice, shiny rims, they are still there. The, every aspect of your car is still there. It just has a little bit of mud on the outside of it. Now think about Christ and His immutability, His omnipresence, how He could then take on the form of something else. Every aspect is still there. But something else has been added it. Let me give you one last illustration for that. So think of a king. King lives with all his privileges as king, right? He has he is waited on hand and foot. He's given everything he wants, the grapes hanging over his mouth, you know. He has royal garments that are that are spiffy, that are clean, that just look grand, right? And this king, as he is driving through his kingdom, he sees these group of beggars. And he says, I wonder what it's like to live like them. Now, not, don't relate that because God doesn't wonder. He knows all. 
But the king says, I want to experience, I want to live like them. So he gives up his royal garments, he gives up his armies, and he goes to live the life of a beggar. As they get sick, as he gets sick, he does not call out to his royal guard to come save him, to take him back to his doctors. Instead, he experiences the illness just as those beggars experience that illness. As he is starving, he does not call for his royal chef to come give him a feast. Instead, he experiences starvation just as those experience starvation. Were all of those chefs and royal garments, were those all still his? Yeah, he never gave them up. And they are his for the taking at any moment. He could have called and said, I'm coming back home. I'm done with this. But he doesn't give those up. So they're all still his. Think about that. Christ, at any moment, could have called 10,000 angels to wipe this place out. He could have said, Father, I'm done. This is not going to work. Um, Now, there's other theological reasons why we wouldn't go down that road. But the fact is, is, this is, I think, a couple of illustrations I hope help you in seeing how Christ could give up something yet still have it. So, thirdly, or fourthly, we see the obedience of Jesus Christ. We see the obedience of Jesus Christ. And being found, in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's here we see the ultimate reason for the self-emptying of Christ. The ultimate reason that he would eventually go to the cross. He became fully man in order that he would obey the Father in going to the cross, giving his life for others. So the ultimate purpose was to obey the Father even to the point of death on a cross. Um, let, me, let me make a couple comments and I'm going to kind of um, cut some of this down f- for a little bit. If you have questions, we can talk later. But I think Paul's point here is the kind and extent of obedience that Christ had. The kind and extent of obedience. And I, th- and I think part of what we need to see here that I, that I want you to see is that Christ was obedient to the Father prior to and including coming to this earth. So it wasn't Christ, Paul's not saying in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, the obedi- by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I don't think he's saying he's being obedient to God just in the incarnation. But is eternally obedient to God, and in doing so, he becomes obedient even to the point of death. Okay? Again, I don't have time to dive into it, but I think that that's something crucial for us to see. Write down this verse, John six thirty-eight. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who sent me. Think about that. There's a level of submission between the Father and the Son if it is God who sends him. It was the God's task Jesus was given to come. So we see obedience. And, and that it sets a stage for some discussion a little bit later on. Um, that's important for us over the next couple weeks as we look more closely at this. 
So the extent to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, it's not the obedience that Paul is stressing. I think it's the kind of obedience that he is stressing. To the extent to which he was called to go, even to death on a cross. So it was an obedience of eternal nature, and it was an obedience to the fullest extent. And we'll leave it at that. So you say, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Christ humbled himself to the point of a cross. What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do? Um, Maybe the last kind of main thought here. We are to humble ourselves or humble and put the interest of others first. We are to humble ourselves and put the interest of others first. Let's go back to the whole passage and read, read the whole passage here in Philippians. Kind of piece this all together. He says, so if there's any enjoyment in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is what? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gives us the example of Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ. Um, you, know, you know the phrase, what would Jesus do? Like, you know how cliche and trite that that phrase has become? Um, it means very little today. But this is exactly what Paul is referring to. He says, you do this, and we see this exemplified in Christ. We see Christ doing this. What is he we doing? What, first of all, we need to stop and consider first what Christ did in coming to this earth. If we're going to pick up on the, the, uh, the greatness of this passage, think about it. He took on a human, on our human nature. Think about that. He took on our human nature, the humility the servant. Think about those things. He endured suffering. He experienced an agonizing death. These are things that he had never experienced for all of eternity past. He was subject to the vanity of this life. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. So here we have the highly exalted Lord of this earth who ventures to live as a beggar among the people. Not literally, but you get what I mean. Came to live as a servant among the people. His concern, and let's just, let's just think about it. If you know some things about the life of Christ, he didn't explicitly say this right here, but we can look at these things. Christ, Christ's concern was not what felt the best. Christ's concern was not what benefited him the most. I mean, ultimately, yes, serving God is what felt the best, but you get my point. He wasn't looking out for just himself. His concern was not what he was necessarily enjoying at the moment. His concern was for those whom he came to save, and ultimately his concern was for God. But you think about the privileges he gives up during his time on earth. 
and serving. I mean, and we think about how he, how he washes the disciples' feet. I mean, think about those things. The God of the universe washing a man's dirty, nasty feet. So I think Paul is being very practical uh, here, even amidst this deep theological truths. I think he's giving the church in Philippi some very practical information that I want to make sure we do not miss out on. We should engage each other through warm welcome and hospitality whenever we see each other. Whether that's in house gatherings, that's at service, whether that's someone who's a part of our church or who's not a part of our church. We should have an attitude towards life and towards each other that does not prefer ourselves over them. So in that moment, you're doing something that you prefer to do, like chit-chatting to this person about something that is maybe not that productive, but maybe is fun, and you see someone over there who, who's not being engaged or, or maybe needs, is struggling with something, give up your preference of that enjoyable conversation to go take care of that person. And you say, well, is this just doing better things? No, we're talking about going back to Christ. We're going to get there in just a few moments, and I think that will help us wrap this up. But the, the heart of it comes down to is that Christ, Christ did not hold on to His preferences so tightly that He did not and was not willing to go serve and do the mission that God had called Him to do. And we, very practically, even in the next 30 minutes, will do things where we are setting our preference up above other people even in the light of knowing that Christ did the opposite. Let me challenge us. You know, there's many different applications of this, but is our preference for ourselves always more weightier than the preference of other people? Would we rather get to the restaurant more on time, or would we rather make sure that so-and-so is being taken care of, or so-and-so has help? carrying their stuff out. I mean, there's, there's a thousand different applications for this. Uh, very practically, um, you know, things like just seeing someone carry something and help them, go help them carry it. See someone in need, go help them. Um, Christ's concern was for his sheep. He gave up his life for his sheep. He put the preferences of his sheep before his own. You say, well, how do we fix this, Matt? How, how do we fix this selfish preferential treatment in our own lives? How do, we, how do we fix this? How do we have participation in spirit, any affection? So how, do we, how do we have one mind and be of full of cord and how do we not have rivalry, but how do we, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves? How do we do that? Do we, give a, do we give ourselves like, okay, I need to do three things today that display humility. Is that how we fix that? Do we go, I want three things today, and as long as I do that, I'm good. Is that what Christ did? All right, God, give me the bare minimum. 
three things I got to do to go rescue these people, and then I'm doing it and getting out. Is that what Christ did? How do we fix this? We go back to Christ. You beg Christ to give you a humble servant's heart. I mean, what's he saying here? What's he saying here? He, he says, you need to do this. Like, if there's any love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if you guys are, like, if there's actually the Holy Spirit rocking in your guys' life, then do this. And then he says, Christ did this. And then he goes on later, what's really cool is he goes on later to talk about how Christ would be the one who would work all these things through us and how God would transform us from the inside out. So you learn the heart of Christ and what he did by studying Christ. See, a lot of us, like, we don't run back to Christ again because we don't understand Christ like we should. And, and this running back to Christ is not a, it's not a, a, a mystical, I, well, I just need to say Jesus' name ten times and now I'm going to be fixed. It's a running back to him and an understanding of understanding of him. So what, I mean, what's Paul do? Paul tells them to do this, and what does he do? He describes to them Christ and what he did. He describes to them Christ, so they are, he goes from here of how you should be acting towards each other to greater understanding of Christ and who he is. And not just his actions, but the depth of those actions and where his heart was at in the process, ultimately where his heart was at. So today we've studied the person of Christ. You see him more clearly, you should. Um, what he did in coming to this earth, the sacrifices he made, and how he lived his life as, as a man. Uh, Dr. Ware said this. So the antidote to this problem of putting ourselves first, the antidote to this problem of not doing what Paul says here, is this, and I think these are profound words, is deep and prolonged meditation on the magnitude of the humble obedience and agonizing suffering of our Lord. What's the fix to this? It's meditating on Christ. But it's not meditating on Christ on your second grade understanding of Christ. And see, most of us are living there. We need to live on a growing knowledge of Christ. An ever-growing, ever-changing, ever-deepening, and meditating on Christ. A couple main thoughts from today, and we're done. Run to Christ. He was a man. He humbled himself, lived his life as a human, so that one day... He might die on a cross to save us. The main point of the text is consider others before yourself. Have a hospitality that reflects the humility of our humble Savior. Have a life that displays the humility of our humiliated Savior. So, let me say this, and, and I got a couple more short things, and we'll be dismissed. Um, the cool thing about this is that 
when Paul is giving, the, giving them this picture of what this should look like, he's telling them if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and, and we didn't get a chance to dig into all of that. You know, but in humility, count others before yourselves. What, what's he do? What's the fix, if you will? As he takes them to Christ. He takes them back to the one who is in the process of redeeming all of creation, redeeming all of their actions. He takes them back to Christ. Now what do we find when we're in Christ? What do we find? What? Grace? What else do we find in Christ? Our identity in Christ? What else? Power in Christ. What else? Come on. Freedom in Christ. Freedom from what? From sin. From the chains, the bondage of sin. From that selfish behavior. From the lack of hospitality. From all those things. We, we find the freedom, the power, the grace. The joy. And what's it cost us? Knowing Him, right? Like, it doesn't cost us anything, ultimately, right? I mean, it costs us our life, but, right? But, but we lose our life just to gain His, right? I mean, think about that truth. I mean, is He saying, all right, now, you need to give up, like, 10 hours a day in order to display this humility? To me, is that His, is that his anecdote or, uh, to this? No. Or antidote, sorry, not anecdote. It's, um, it's a marvelous picture. And I hope you see that. Don't leave this place going, oh, now I just have another thing that I have to fix. But leave this place going, I have a Savior who is fixing this in me, and I just need to know Him. Right? I just need to know Him. And know Him in His glory and in His majesty. Know Him in His splendor. This king that we worship this time of the year, he came, he humiliated himself so that we might know him more clearly. So why strip him of his humanity to put so much emphasis on his deity? He came and lived this life in a humble spirit for you and I, ultimately for God's glory. So that when we run back, we're not just running back to God, but he's run, we're running back to one who suffered among us. Right? Let me read to you two last things when we're done. Uh, Julia Johnston wrote this hymn, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. He says this, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there was the blood of the Lamb, or there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. The Course says this, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Verse 2, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, wider than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace is greater than all our sin. Verse 3. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. All that are longing to see His face. Will you this moment His grace receive? It says grace, 
grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that's greater than all our sin. We see the grace of God in the manger. We see the grace of God in our lives. Let these words in the text humble you at the foot of the manger turned cross turned throne as ruler of this world. It's grace. It's these two aspects we see. And I hope you walk away a little more clearly understanding that Christ and how these two aspects to fit together because it's going to affect as we study next week and the following week, next week, how did Christ live this life in the power of the Holy Spirit? See, we think Christ did what He did because He's Christ, because He's Jesus, because He's God, right? Uh, he had to depend on the Holy Spirit just as you and I have to depend on the Holy Spirit. And you say, whoa, 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 but then He's not God. We'll get there next week. Thirdly, we're going to talk about how Christ grew in faith and wisdom, but primarily in faith. How did Christ, who is God, grow in faith? How did He grow in obedience? Ooh, God grew in obedience. How did this work? So, those are the next couple weeks to come. So let's pray, and uh, we'll be dismissed. I've eaten up all of our time. <laughs> Father God, Thank you for giving us understanding. Father, thank you for choosing to show to us how this picture goes together. Father, there are many things that you have hidden from our minds and our understanding, but Father, I, we can see the wisdom, I believe, in this understanding and how it affects our carrying out this life uh, of mission and servitude and humility that you've called us all to. Father, uh, thank you for your grace. We can run back to you. Father, let us have hearts of humility towards each other, that we put each other's preferences above our own. Uh, Father, uh, thank you. And uh, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.